think I say in the introduction of Talent You Zhu, the first version I get, the non-audio version, the text, the textual version, um, that I don't think I really knew. This grew, This book grew in organically. It started as a little blog post and then it got bigger and then it got bigger and then you start realizing you have to kind of backfill some of the bigger ideas to say why those big ideas need to be understood and why they're not blah, 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 blah. And I don't think I realized that that a huge section of this book was effectively going to be you need to unlearn so much stuff, so much stuff about hiring and recruiting um, connected to comp and band, connected to HR, connected to marketing, whatever, needs is broken. It doesn't work. It needs to be kind of collapsed, crushed, raised, and then said, okay, what do we what do we really want to do here? And that's really where we're still. At. And this is really the last section of that part of the book. We, you know, if you if you listen, last week we talked about what's a job. It's still <laughs> the least kind of considered idea, but I think it's the most foundational because jobs aren't really jobs. They're not really codified and structured as jobs anymore. That they are means of value creation and the person who takes that job, he uses in verbal air quotes, uh, really is there to say, solve this problem using the tools at your disposal. And we hire you because we think those tools will help you get the job done. Having established that, the next step is to say, let's widen our perspective on who we talk to about these quote unquote jobs. I gotta, I gotta just assume the word job is always in quotes um, bunny ears, if you will, air quotes, and I won't have to kind of try and draw attention to it every single time, but let's just assume we know that jobs aren't really real. They're just really constructs of our imagination based on outdated thinking, yada, yada, yada. And that once you understand that, you can start to realize, wait, there's a lot of good ways to hire smart people. And by the way, now that we are in the middle of the great resignation, there should be theme music for that. This is the stuff that matters. This is the stuff that you're, I'm starting to see articles about, you know, if you read the newsletter, uh, you start to see articles about this stuff that people are realizing that going back to the water and going back to the pool and throwing out a net and collecting what they collect and picking a candidate from that and throwing the rest out doesn't work. And we're going to get really super deep into that stuff. Um, we are, aren't we? I'm pretty sure. I can't remember what we talked about. I'm pretty sure we did. Um, but we're going to really talk about the kinds of candidates we should be looking at. That's what we're going to focus on today on the Talent Cast. Hey, how you doing? James Ellis, your host and chief loudmouth, I guess. Chief executive loudmouth, CEOLM. I'm going to get some business cards made. Go full on Zuck on that one. Um, yeah, because that's a good indication that I'm not a psychopath. Anyway, we're going to talk about internal candidates and we're going to talk about second place finishers and we're going to talk about some other stuff. But I just want to say welcome to the Talent Cast. And this is the season two, which means I'm doing the audiobook of Talent Chooses You. And I'm doing it as not as a verbatim right reading of the text, but more as a revision, an opportunity to kind of add some things in and kind of take three years of information uh, that I've written, that I've collected in my head since I wrote it and giving it in the audiobook version. So think of it as uh, Talent Chooses You, the sequel, the electric boogaloo, what have you. It's, it's We're doing it again. And this is all brought to you by RecruitmentMarketing.com. Uh, 
they're great. They've been fantastic at, you know, build this built this community for recruitment marketers and uh, they've sponsored this entire project and I can't thank them enough for this. So let's get into it. So having talked about what a job is and realizing it is a blah, blah, blah construct, which isn't that kind of like money isn't real. It's really a construct. That's why Bitcoin can be a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, we're going to set that aside. Um, or even worse yet, the economy isn't a thing. It's really a construct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, <laughs> bigger conversation. But the concept of a job is a concept, and that is all. And it's just a simple, useful kind of heuristic for understanding who do we want. You know, we hire people, right? So we're going to hire them, and they're going to do a job. So once you kind of break that down, you start to realize that there's all these candidates all around that can help you. Because when you're hiring for a role, the role is temporary. The value is temporary because you hire them to create value. They create the value. What, do they just disappear? No, that's called a contractor. That's called a freelancer. You're hiring someone to be on the staff and learn from you and learn how your organization works and collect that internal tribal knowledge understanding that helps them work with the rest of the people who are also doing similar vaguely defined jobs to say, this is how I add more value. The people you hire are there to create value, right? So you need to stop saying, okay, we have a new job requisition. I'm going to go out and find somebody. There are plenty, plenty, plenty of pockets of people that you should be thinking about when you're focusing on how to hire these people. From an employer brand perspective, these audiences are super important because for the most part, they have a deeper sense of the employer brand promise that you're making than the quote unquote rando streets who, you know, people who apply cold, right? This is real value. In a lot of cases, there's a, there's a whole cycle here where having touched your brand and engaged with your brand once through a cycle, they come back. They come back with more knowledge about the employer brand and you need to know that and you can use that. So we're going to start with the first um, audience and that is internal candidates or developed candidates. So if we can break free from what the book says, concept of job descriptions, and embrace the idea that a job is a really, really fluid thing, the perspective of the business, HR and the recruiter, has to evolve as well. And this means taking the development of your people seriously, right? There's a whole host of companies that do nothing but hire at the bottom rung and raise them up, right? They've taken this strategy to its fullest extent. Too many companies, in my experience, almost all of them, sadly, pay just lip service to this idea that their people are their greatest assets. And right, I think that there's not enough sarcasm that could be applied to the frame to phrase people are our greatest assets. It's the most god-awful thing that we've forced executives to say. It's the biggest bullshit lie um, because, you know, as we know, they're not an asset. They are the business, right? That's like saying... Um, I don't know what's a good one. You know, steel is the best asset of the car. No, I think steel is the car. Without the steel, there's not much of a car. It's tires and some wiring and, 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 sharp, and a rounded sheets of glass. That's your car. Uh, the people are the business. Simple as that. The problem is they say that they're the quote-unquote greatest asset, but they don't support that growth, right? They assume, and we've seen this play out over and over again, I'm going to hire you because you have the experience and have done this thing before, so go do this thing. And then we wonder why they leave because they didn't grow. They didn't learn anything. They got, they went, I, I've done this before. I, I'm gone. Or we hire people junior and don't train them. We say they have the potential to be great and to do this job really, really well, but we're not going to invest in them. They're going to figure it out on their own. 
And by the way, the pay scales on those things are radically different, which is hilarious, but there you go. Um, the expectation is, is that employees got to figure it out on their own, right? They got to, you know, I have so many companies I've been a part of have said developing yourself is really important, but then they don't offer time or resources or money to make that happen. It's like they say for eight to 10 to 12 hours a day, your ass is mine, but you should grow, but do it on your own damn time, which is just insane. Do we not understand the concept of downtime? Do we not understand the concept of kind of powering down and saying, how do we grow? There you go. You know, and the worst part is they ask you to ask those, those people to pay for it to, on their own cash, on their own dime. Go take that class, go to college, go take that seminar, go take that whatever, but do it on your own dime in your own time. By the way, having done that, the company reaps the reward. Oh, wait, where are you going? <laughs> I mean, how many times have you seen some sort of company policy that helps you develop your skill, but the boss doesn't give you any time to access it? That is so common. So this leads to a company demanding growth of its people, but not actually supporting that development. This is yet another in a long, long, long book length document called Things Businesses Say They Want, Things They Don't Want to Pay For, right? It's a very big book. Um, you know, if you have, I mean, do you have even a talent development team? If you do, is it really supporting the growth of an employee or is it just teaching people how to manage Right. And, and by manage, we mean how to not put the company in some sort of legal jeopardy by doing something wrong. Right. There's I know plenty of businesses who make great amounts of money teaching, you know, selling their services to companies saying we're going to teach your managers. But what they're not teaching management, they're not teaching leadership. What they're doing is here are the rules, of the road so you don't get your ass sued and you don't get us sued. And that's it. And that's what constitutes management tra training, which is just atrocious. No wonder management in this country is so generally bad. Not everybody. And I got a boss or two who I want to say does not fit that group. Uh, but there you are. Right. It's, it, you know, what we need to do is think about getting beyond rule socialization. We need to think about establishing and embedding what the rules are and go, OK, now that you know the rules, grow. How do we get them to grow? I mean, honestly, thinking about, you know, most management sites, management training, it's just, it really doesn't kind of foster this idea of a dynamic and fun work environment, does it? I mean, take it a different way. If you needed to learn a skill, maybe you wanted to experiment with building a chat bot that helps you screen and schedule and set up a phone screen. There's an easy case to be made that this would save you and all the other recruiters real time. And time is money and the cost wouldn't be very much. I mean, chatbots are fairly straightforward. So long as you're not getting into the machine learning AI aspect of it, right? You can build some pretty straightforward chatbots. So would your company give you any time to work on it? Would they pay for an online class to teach you how to build a bot? Would they buy a simple software package that made that bot work? Or is it more likely that if you killed a few weeks and built it to prove the value, the company would implement it for all recorders and just thank you for it and be on your way? Would the expectation be that some sort of reward, I mean, less obviously less than the time and resources you took to build it, would come at the end? I mean, this is a company that doesn't support growth and development, but one that takes advantage of it when presented of it. That is to say, most businesses. Now, this is starting to change, I think, to some extent. I think when you start to talk about wellness and you start to talk about downtime, you start to talk about, uh, you know, the great resignation as it was, is really kind of being an impetus to say, hey, maybe don't. <laughs> hey, 
companies, you know all those bad things you do you're in people because you can? Maybe no. How about no? How about uh-uh? How about don't do that? There's nothing wrong with a model of just saying, hey, build it on your own time and we'll take it. We're paying you, so whatever. Great talent is naturally motivated to create that growth, right? The people you know of as great didn't become great because they read a book on how to be great. If that happened, please point that book to me. Um, What they do is they're inherently and intrinsically driven to do something, to build something. The trick is your company just doesn't invest in it and doesn't foster it. You just, you're given the talent and you've given that talent a, a reason to leave, right? And the recruiters are in the same boat. You had a recruiter who know how, knew how to build bots and wanted to build bots, but you didn't support it. So guess what? There's a company out there that does. Bye-bye, recruiter. I mean, obviously the irony is that if you left the company, if I mean, if they left the company and you had to go out and replace that with a recruiter who builds bots, you'd be spending a lot more money on outside talent than if you had just supported the talent internally to begin with. External talent is always more expensive than internal talent, and yet somehow we don't value and develop the internal talent. Generally, talent development is is labeled a cost center, right? It's the thing we squeeze because it's expensive and doesn't actually drive any value. Now, every recruiter, every employer brand, or every HR person, every finance person should be just rolling their eyes at this point. But let's be fair. That's what happens. In a downturn, what's the first thing you do? You cut down your cost centers. That's just how that works. Many organizations just, you know, throw talent development into that and lump them in the same way. Oh, it was a downturn. We better get rid of talent development. They're not actually adding value. (laughs) What? Right? I mean, that's a pretty sad commentary on the state of most companies' approaches to retaining talent. If you want talent to stay, give them a place to grow. They'll be less likely to leave. It's just that simple, right? You know, most of these policies of saying, hey, you can't moonlight, you can't develop on their own time, and anything you build on your own time belongs to us anyway, it's just an invitation for those people to leave. Okay, so enough doom and gloom, right? Within all this is a huge opportunity for you. If you invest in support growth, if you reward it appropriately, people do stay. Oh gosh, have we figured out the solution to the great resignation? No, maybe not so much, but let's be fair, this goes a long way. (laughs) This won't hurt even a little. This has to help. The fastest way to make all this stuff happen, to invest and support the growth, is to ask recruiters to start all new requisitions with a quick search of internal talent. Now, that is a big ask. I know that for certain now. I didn't know that quite so much then, but it's a big ask, but it's an important ask. And there are tools that will help. I'm not gonna get into tool sets here, but where the talent developments team is always begging people to please show up and engage and grow. The recruiter has the best bait in the world, a better and more rewarding job. That's, that's, that's gonna move people. The cost of hiring exceptional talent from the outside is way more than the cost of promoting from within. And these people already know the team and the management, the politics and the culture, right? They're already going to, that means that when they start this job, even if they quote unquote, don't have all the skills they need immediately, they have so much more to move to a profit position faster, far faster, right? And the recruiters themselves get to spend their time hiring more junior roles at a higher level. This adjustment in focus allows the organization as a whole to hire a higher percentage of people at entry level, allowing you to build systems, which is cheaper and faster on a per unit basis, than bulk hire. You can hire three entry level folks for the cost of one season employee, but you can develop them. And frankly, the fact that you've developed them means that they're going to be more loyal. 
You can attract the best level of entry candidates because you're now investing and promoting from within, giving them a path, driving longer tenures at a lower level of investment. Now, did I invent that? Ha <laughs> ha, no. Everybody knows this, but not everybody invests in it. Hiring internally and internal mobility is often hampered from within. Hiring managers see the known quantity of an internal candidate as less attractive than the potential, I mean, usually mythical, unicorn outside the company walls. They don't want someone they know. They want somebody new. New is sexy. New is fun, right? I think of that movie High Fidelity where John Cusack's character has that realization that every new relationship is more attractive than the one you have already because it's fake, because you don't actually know them well enough as you do with an existing relationship. That existing relationship's imperfect. You know their flaws. You've seen them in a bad day. You've seen them at their worst. And compared to the sexy resume or the sexy LinkedIn profile in front of them, internal candidates cannot compete on a head-to-head -head basis, right? That external candidate has a built a profile designed to hide their imperfections and show off successes. It's that kind of kabuki theater where you're only showing off what you want the employer to see and hoping they don't look too hard around the glossy picture, right? Hiring managers have to ascribe proper value on the in-house talent that already knows the brand, already has been successful in some way within the company, who knows the politics, who knows the process, who seem willing to extend their tenure, who wants to spread the tribal knowledge of the company. Compare that to the candidate who might be a fit, and by the way, the data says that's a coin flip, and that person who may potentially have one day the ability to drive value, maybe, hopefully, it's very much a bird in the hand situation in the wrong direction, right? The, the, the saying is a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. Think of that as your talent. The candidate, the, the, the people you have internally are actually worth more than the person out there who you may or may not be able to get, who may or may not be able to drive the value. The company has to reward managers who hire from within. You can't just implement the policy that, hey, uh, internal candidates, internal mobility is good. You have to reward them. And the other, because the other man, other hurdle here is that managers are unwilling to let good talent go, right? Even if it stays within the company, there's, you know, that sense of, ooh, if I lose my rock star, to use a horrible phrase, to another team, I'm down a rock star. How am I going to hit my numbers if I have less great staff? Oh no, there's a cultural aspect here that says it's okay. We recognize that when you move people over, you are somehow made less than, but that's okay. We're going to reward you in some other way. You have to make the numbers matter. You have to focus on the company as a whole, not team versus team versus team, right? A support system that rewards based on company success and processes that help replace the talent, that's how you get talent to move up the chain and get the and that's how you get manager buy-in. Training and development can be expensive, especially without a strategic plan that supports what the company is actually doing. Instead of just everyone, you know, teaching everybody to manage their staff, which is ugh, gross, um, or get tiny incremental improvements by force feeding them task skills, Look, I'm not going to get much better if you show me a, an Excel trick. That's that's not actually going to make my job much more valuable or my abilities much more valuable, right? But if you shift the entire organization towards adopting internal first mentality, development of, for internal staff for their next job is way, 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 way cheaper than having always hire externally. Remember, employer brand is all about the entire company. It's not about hiring. 
And all the things that you can do are nudges to create systemic changes within the entirety of the organization to create the outcomes that you desire. And sometimes that means working with HR, working with comp and bet, working with the numbers teams to say, hey, if we buy this idea that internal talent's more valuable, we have to put in in its place, incentivize and incentivize, we have to incentivize these outcomes. We have to create the policies that make it okay. We have to get hiring managers to be on board with, to let their people go to other parts of the team, right? This is employer brand. It is about large boat shifting. All right, next section. Second place finishers. I'm going to put room for a commercial here. So I'm going to put a room commercial here right now. Boom. The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. All right, see, it was a commercial. All right, so nobody likes leftovers. I mean, I mean, not me, not my four-year-old, not your four-year-old, not your hiring managers. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I'd be much happier to cook myself something from scratch than just reheat whatever I had last night, even if it's more work for a meal I don't even know that I'll like. It's weird. It's like a human thing, right? It must be the same for recruiters because you've got a great candidate who you've already talked to, who's already been pre-sold on the brand. They know a bit about that company. They came in for an interview maybe, right? They saw the building. They met the people. Many of the people on the interview team really liked them and were inclined to hire, but maybe they got edged out by somebody, somebody slightly stronger, someone with, a, you know, with one extra magical skill set, one person who just clicked with the final hiring manager, something. The recruiter spent like an hour on the resume review and the phone screen and scheduling the interview. The hiring manager brought together two or four other people to talk to the person for 30, 45, 60 minutes, whatever. And then there's all the time to complete the feedback and debrief. Calculating and putting people's salaries with the amount of time spent, and you can quickly see that they've already put hundreds of dollars into educating this candidate. And you would have been happy to hire them if it wasn't for that slightly stronger candidate. These are great people. The money's been invested. The time's been invested and you are throwing them away. And I'm sorry, let me rephrase, not you. And I'm going to assume not your recruiters, your hiring managers, because this stuff comes from hiring managers because the recruiter sees this clear as day. And I've seen so many recruiters go, go to bat to say, they're, just because they're second place finishers doesn't mean they're garbage. Why would you throw the baby out with the bathwater here? And the hiring manager goes, no, 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 I want somebody brand new. And I do not know where that thinking comes from. I wish I knew, because then maybe we could fix some of this stuff, but I don't. But the fact that those candidates were passed over makes them tainted goods to so many people, to so many hiring managers. This is one of the few places where the fallacy of the sunk cost gets reversed. We are thrilled to, talk out, to toss out the candidates, despite how much time the company's invested in them. 
I don't know anyone who feels a second remorse about the time, energy, and money put into these people before we send them the worthless thanks but no thanks email, the one that makes them feel as warm as a piece of aluminum foil, right? And resign them to the quote unquote circular file, which if you're of a certain age, you know, you understand what that joke is. For those of you who don't, that means the garbage can. And this is unique to recruiting and indicative of how we can and should be changing. Any business who takes that kind of time, who takes that kind of approach of tossing out leads of buyers who didn't want to buy that moment would not be in business for very long. And yet somehow in recruiting, totally normal. Blech, boggles the mind. Recruiting has long labored under this idea that if there's all, there's always more fish in the sea, right? Don't worry that everybody who applies wonders if you even got their application because it feels like a black hole to them. It's not a big deal to ask candidates to take time off the work to come to your office to meet people and then take weeks to get back to them, assuming you do and some of you ghost. <laughs> it's fine to ask people to invent time, invest time and effort in your brand and give them exactly nothing in return. No feedback, no meaningful, useful information about how the candidate could have done better, right? It's a completely one-way transaction. And the company goes, yeah, the value is all to us. What do we care? Right? Go take a look at job hunting forums and look at the horror stories from candidates who are ignored, ghosted, and generally treated like grist for the rehiring mill. It sucks. And at the same time, recruiters complain about how no one will respond to their in-mails and emails. Huh, weird. They can't understand why the industry is often held in such low regard. Huh, I wonder, could this sentiment be the result of recruiting industry's practice of treating each requisition as a winner-take-all situation where the selected candidate gets an offer, negotiation and communication while everybody else gets a form letter? I don't know, maybe. It doesn't matter that you keep calling the process dispositioned because to these candidates, they don't feel dispositioned. They feel rejected, which is completely correct. I mean, would you expect those rejected candidates to say nice things about you to their networks? If you're hiring a mechanical engineer, who has more credibility, you or another mechanical, mechanical engineer, especially one who has a deeper understanding of you as they've been in with you for your interviews? And what happens when you disposition your fellow engineers poorly before? How much harder does that make an already hard job for a recruiter? Look, you keep poison in the well, you gotta be, can't be surprised when you start drinking poison in the water. It's that simple. If you keep treating these people like dog crap, guess what? They're going to respond accordingly. If you shift gears from disposition people however you want, there's already more people to talk to, to something more, I don't know, Realistic, like talent exists in an ecosystem, so supporting and nurturing that ecosystem might actually help me succeed. You increase your overall odds of success simply, and this is true, simply by not antagonizing people you need to recruit in the future. Why would you piss them off ahead of time? That makes no sense. But more immediately, second place finishers are an amazing source of talent, provided you treat them right, especially when you have to give them the news that they aren't getting the offer. That's kind of the moment of, that's when the rubber meets the road, right? To me, and I've seen it happen so often with recruiters and hiring managers, that's the moment when you go, look, candidate, you aren't about, you aren't about to get the answer you want. How do I make this better? 
right? I can't fix it. It's a breakup. You can't make a breakup feel good. What you have to do is rip off the Band-Aid, but what you have to do it is with respect and say, look, this is why you didn't get the job. This is what you could have done better, but here's how we're going to move forward. However, look, we thought you were amazing. We do actually have these other roles. Would you like to talk to us about that? That is how you disposition a second place finisher. And even if you don't have another role, you've got to have a list somewhere. And by the way, almost every recruiter does. You've got a list of where you keep those people, people who are great, people who got bought in, people you said, look, I'm not going to piss them off as they walk out, as I kick them out, right? Let's be fair. Let's, let's be more honest about what is going on, that you're going to treat them well so that next week, next month, next year, you can say, hey, Long time no see. I'm sorry it didn't work out last time, but guess what? I got another shot here. I got another chance. And I've already talked you up to the hiring manager and they're interested. Do you want to move forward? That is how you disposition a second place finisher that doesn't poison the well, that doesn't piss people off as much as you can, and allows you to hire better long term. Simple as that. Referrals and advocacy. I've yet to meet a company who thinks they do referrals wrong. Everybody thinks they do it right. <laughs> Everybody does. It's one of those things. Well, but to be fair, I haven't met a company where the hiring managers think they're bad interviewers, <laughs> where the hiring managers think that they aren't doing it right. They all think they are. They all know they are. You cannot convince these people that it's broken. I mean, sure, if you look at their referral metrics, they get 5 to 10% of new hires through referrals, but that's not their fault, right? They're doing it all right. Other companies might know that their referral program isn't working, that it isn't driving the kind of candidates they want, but they don't understand why. But it's not that hard. I'm not saying that at referrals and advocacy is easy by any stretch. I'm simply saying diagnosing the problem here isn't that isn't really that hard. It's willful blindness that they're not actually pointing out what's wrong. They're pretending that building a referral program the way everybody else does it, by the way, most companies are doing it wrong because they're thinking you're still stuck in old school. I have an open role, so you should be desperate to join me kind of thinking instead of how do I get people to want to volunteer to join us to help us here, right? The thing we've been talking about this whole time, right? Right. We got it. Okay, cool, cool. That's why that's the thing. You're following old thinking because everybody else is. And that's another thing I hate about recruiter, you know, as an as a, as a industry, there's so much follow the leader. It's insane. Um, oh, everybody else is doing this tool. Okay, great. I'll use it too. But does it work? I don't know. Everybody else is using it. So I guess I'm going to do it. Ah, pulling hair out. Look, it's real simple. First off, referrals are the gold standard of hiring. And I cannot be convinced otherwise. I've seen the data over and over and over again. They are it. You want referrals. I've met some talent leaders who hate referrals and I had to show them the data and they went, oh, and I get, look, one bad, hey, the senior vice president of who the hell cares has a cousin and he's made me a referral and this kid is an idiot, but I can't, oh God. And I hate, thus, I hate referrals. I get that. I get that. That is a poisoning the well situation. However, on the aggregate, when you take a step back and look at the data, they are absolute gold. 
absolute gold. The statistics are clear. They show that referrals tend to be better hires. They don't ghost on you. They stay longer. They drive more value over longer tenures and generally are more engaged to say how nothing, say nothing of how engaged referring an employee is, right? That person who refers and says, oh, wow, I got listened to. Oh, wow, my friend is joining. Oh, wow, I made an impact. You think that's not engaging? It absolutely is. Referrals are seeds that sprout in the right dirt. Build a culture within which the staff don't feel like their professional needs are being met. And it's like salt in the earth and wondering why the crops don't grow. But if you have a culture, one that reinforces a reason why people should work there, if you reward the people who aligned that reason, and if you remind people that if they like that why, their networks might too, then you have the beginnings of a successful rewards program. Point out, just want to make sure it's crystal clear here, at no point have I mentioned the referral bonus. That's right. The bonus is a nice to have. It is not a driver unless your culture sucks, in which case you're going to need that bonus because people are going to, that's the only way you can bribe, and yes, that's the right word, bribe your employees to give us names. In the right culture, you don't have to bribe. Now, I'm not saying in the right culture, you don't have to bonus people, but you're fixing the wrong problem if you think the bonus is how you fix this. I'm just saying. So here's the deal. Referral program failure generally has two root causes. One, no one wants to do it. Or two, no one remembers to do it. And the second one's interesting to me. So first, in a company with sagging morale and growing culture of disengagement, no referral tool in the world will make referrals happen. I'm going to say that again. If your culture sucks, there's not a tool in the world that fixes that thing, that fixes the referral problem. The earth, the dirt is full of salt. Nothing will grow. The answer is not to plant more seeds. That's not your problem. The answer isn't to water more, you know, the dirt more. The answer is the dirt's broken. You don't fix broken dirt by switching seeds. Okay. Drowning people don't grab an anvil. I don't care how easy you make it for them to hold. I don't care if you stick handles on it. If they're drowning, they're not going to grab onto it and sink deeper. If they're already looking for the exits, they're not about to suggest to their friends and connections to join. A, a poor performing referral program is an amazing sign and an obvious sign that, the, that those less than stellar employee engagement surveys might be right. In that case, the problem isn't the referral program, but something deeper you should solve before you can expect anybody to send you new referrals. The dirt's salted, nothing's going to grow. Simple as that. So that leads us to the second problem. If your company's culture isn't toxic and you have generally positive engagement scores, yay, good for you, wonderful, excellent. The problem isn't the tool. That's not what's keeping people from referring. It's the timing. I mean, most companies just generally do an, an annual announcement of the referral program. It's usually the first week of the year. Hey, everybody, welcome to new, it's 2022. Just want to remind everybody we've got a referral package and a bonus, so refer your friends. And that is what you think of as a announcing a program, right? Maybe you do something semi-lavish or splashy. Maybe you get, <clears throat> I don't know, your CEO, CEO to make a fool themselves in front of the all-staff meeting a little bit to show how committed they are to the program, right? And then you put some posters up and you stick them in the bulletin boards around the company near the copiers, right? Remember copiers? Remember needing to be in the office? I know, funny, right? And then maybe, oh, oh, and you got to send an all-staff email and maybe throw something on Slack, right? You did everything you could do, right? <laughs> and by the way, there's so many air quotes around that phrase. 
But all that doesn't work. If it's 4th of July, and I told you, and this is going to be in the north, northern hemisphere, it's 4th of July, and I told you the secrets to staying warm, what are the chances you'd remember in the height of summer heat? Like, none. If you tell a chilly person how to stay warm, they're going to remember, and they're going to act immediately. We launch and announce referral programs on HR schedule, not on the staff schedule, and not on talent schedule, and that's why they fail. This leads to the common refrain of, I'm not sure why we're not getting referrals, so uh, maybe we'll increase the bonuses, but it doesn't matter. The effect, I mean, you get, an, you get an immediate kind of bump, but then it falls back to where it was. Alternatively, the company can invest in a really expensive piece of software that no one remembers how to use and becomes a budget line item without any value whatsoever. And just because there's technology involved, it doesn't change the rules. Don't announce a generalized recruiting campaign or tool and expect people to remember it for more than four and a half seconds. Ask a manager to ask their teams, who know, by the way, the kind of team you're talking about for the role and maybe know the people, to refer someone for the specific role as the role opens. That's how you get people to act. It's really simple. Look, if I tell you, this, the, the announcement on, on January 3rd and January 17th rolls around, they've already forgotten. And by the way, when you announce it, you always say, hey, send great people. And you're like, um, I, mm, uh, I don't know what that means. Well, for what role? And you would ask and they say, oh, just go to the job board and figure it out. Oh, wait, now the own, you've put the burden on the, the team who wants to refer and have that spark of maybe I should refer my friend, but then you've made it so hard. They go, oh, stupid, I'm done. That's how you, what you've done. You've made it really, really hard. Instead, what you say is, hey, hiring manager, I'm about to open this role on our ATS. Here is the URL of the job on our public board. Here's what I'd like you to do. Send this email to everyone in your, in your team and ask them to refer someone. And when I say this email, what I mean is send a very specific email. I mean, hey team, we finally got approval to open this job and throw in the title and say, this is the kind of role that's really gonna help us grow as a team that's gonna support you and you can support them. I can't wait to bring somebody on board. I would love it if you could refer one of your friends, somebody you know who is great, who you think would be a great fit for this role. Remember, if we hire them, the bonus is blah, 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 blah. Thanks so much. Here's the link. Manager, send. Now, why does that work? And why does that work so, 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 so much better than the annual, hey, the CEO is wearing a wacky costume. You got to invest in us, so you should refer some people, which, by the way, never does. Here's why it works. It's about being specific. Really, really simple. You're telling the team, the people who probably know the referral you want, what the role is. Not that you're hiring generally, but what this role is. Hey, the hiring manager should also throw in a, we're looking for someone who's really good at blank, right? Get specific. The team will understand that because that's the job they do. And send them the link to say, send them to this person. Give them the direction here. Don't force them to go looking on the internet. They can't find anything on to say, hey, figure out the rules on your own, buddy. Go for it. They never do. Also, so many companies have tiered 
uh, higher, uh, bonus referral structures like, oh, some the uh, super sexy developer role gets a blah, blah, blah role, uh, blah, blah, blah bonus, but the entry level junior gets a one tenth that size bonus. And it's like there are four diff- different tiers. But people, any kind of confusion kills the incentive to action. So what you got to do and tell the hire manager, the bonus for referral for this job is this amount of money. Here it is. And if there's no bonus, don't add it in. But I'm saying if you do and it's more complicated, this is how you eliminate confusion. Eliminating confusion drives action. So you're having the hire manager, who is that team's boss and therefore has authority, to take to think about their network today, now. Not eventually, not to remember to think of it later, for a role that is very, very specific so they can think of who would be a great fit. They give them the direction and they give them the bonus, all of which concrete. I have firsthand knowledge that this blows the door off of every other tool you've ever seen. Now, you make that work by getting recruiters to processitize that internally. Get them to understand that they can get two or three referrals for every job wreck almost instantly when they bake in that paragraph to the hire manager when they post that job. Simple as that. So I guess this is the point in time I should talk about bonusing. Referral program should never be a salary support program. It can't be seen as a transactional way to collect a bonus because a bonus isn't actually why people make a referral. You want proof? Great. Double your bonus, announce it the way you always do, and the referral rate won't be any higher a month later. Simple as that. Easy test. The bonus is is a thank you. It's a tip. It's a gratuity. It's a recognition of effort. That is it. What you need to focus your messaging on is how bringing in talent helps the team, helps their team, not some team someplace else, but their team. Yes, that helps the company. Yes, it supports the culture, but it helps them, right? I would much rather be surrounded by people who are excellent at their job. Wouldn't you? There, that's your incentive. People make referrals to great companies to bring people they like into great companies. A big referral bonus is nice, but it creates a tension in the referrer's mind. Huh, I get a mediocre salary increase for doing great work, but if I bring people in, I could see thousands of dollars all at once? Huh, shouldn't I be valued for the work I do? Huh, and suddenly that reward undermines your intention. So don't assume that the dollar figure or the euro figure or whatever drives action. It doesn't. All the messaging should be we-focused, right? In the you and us kind of way and not in an all of us in charge kind of way. You know, pull the right emotional triggers, which you do at the right time, right? Line these ideas up, gangbusters for your, for your referral program. Okay. Now, the employees who refer people are advocating for you. And you got to love that. You got to incentivize that. You got to thank them. Even if it's not with money, you got to let them know you appreciate that. Because by the way, they're the ones leaving great reviews on your review sites. They're the ones talking about how great it is to work for you on LinkedIn and Blind and all those other places. They like your content on social media. They're the ones who are sharing it. They stoke the fire that increases brand awareness and reach. And they talk to people who normally ignore you. They are the people who are filling the top of your funnel. So you are going to want that ad, that advocacy to happen organically, to be the result of passion, love, love for a company, 
uh, you know, the kind of love that makes people break into song, right? But I'll be uh, nice, I'll be gentle here and call that unrealistic. People might be aligned to the mission. They might feel a connection to the boss. They might feel a connection to leadership and they might feel like they have the agency to speak up. But, and this is a big but, and I cannot lie, it's still a business, right? What if they say the wrong thing and get in trouble? What if they get fired? What might feel like a harmless little joke might be the next reason your company's in the news. The upside of sharing can get overwhelmed by the massive, massive downside, making it an absolutely lousy risk to make. People don't talk about work unless they know the rules about talking at work. So your job to create advocacy is about creating the rules. You look at your onboarding process. You know, in a company of a certain size, there's always that one part of the process where a lawyer shows up, tries to be friendly, but then turns all Freddy Krueger on people to scare the bejesus out of new hires, right? Their job is to make it clear about all the horrible things that will happen to this brand new employee on, you know, whether they do it on purpose or inadvertently, whether they disclose something they shouldn't, doesn't matter, but they use words like fired for cause and lawsuit, and they're bandied about giving that new hire, the one with that eager new spirit, the clear impression that the smart play is to shut the hell up and never speak in public again. No? <laughs> Have you been to your onboarding program? Chances are that's exactly what's happening. But that's not how you create advocacy. What you need to do is book the next meeting right after the lawyer scares the bejesus out of everybody and say, okay, now that we're all terrified, let's bring the needle back to something sane. And this is what the rules are. That's how you foster advocacy. Finally, oh, it's a long one. Uh, advocate, alumni and boomerangs. So don't blame millennials for normalizing this whole job hopping thing, because as a Gen Xer, I have been accused of that all my life. Not wrongly per se, but I'm not saying correctly, but whatever. But to be fair, it's not the millennial or the job hopper's fault. Blame the companies who are comfortable paying external talent higher wages than internal talent. Companies that would happily increase salaries to meet industry standards for you know all the incoming talent, but only offer 3% raises for people already succeeding in the role? Yeah, that's the problem. In an effort to speed up the process of attracting new talent, these companies have incentivized job hopping and made it crystal clear that the best way to make more money is to get out. And HR wrings its hands about this so publicly and has done so for years, attempting to shame people into being loyal without paying for that loyalty. Huh, weird, didn't work. Welcome to the great resignation. How you doing? Now, companies are calling job hopping the new normal, which it is, and adjusting their talent strategies accordingly. Not fast enough for my money, but here you go. 25 years ago, people leaving were given the cold shoulder. They were told not to let the door hit their ass on the way as they left. They were felt like they were dead to the company. These days, hearing stories like that paints management as defensive, petty, unenlightened, jerk faces. I don't know. Call it what you will. And certainly those are the things that show up on Glassdoor reviews, no matter how much the company tries to spin it. These are emotional reactions. No question. The hiring manager depends on that employee to generate value and isn't always able to see discontent and satisfaction brewing. And in a world where a better salary and a chance at a deeper job satisfaction is only one recruiter call away, when each day is a choice because they're volunteers and employees are reacting to bad management, what do they do? They walk away. Punish them for making that choice <laughs> and they will toast you like a marshmallow on a campfire, right? They will sing 
that song on every review board they can find and gossip site they can find as they pack their belongings, right? They will be tweeting how crappy your boss is. You know, there's a whole, there's actually multiple communities on Reddit for this stuff. There's a whole community called anti-work on Reddit that's just about, let me show you how bad my boss is and this is why I don't like to work. It's a killer. It's amazing. It doesn't have to be that way. If people changing jobs is the new normal, right? You know, think about the gig economy, the freelancer nation, professional nomads, great resignation, yada, yada, yada. You can actually change how you respond. And as you wish them well, with sincerity, as you offer to give them a great recommendation on LinkedIn, as you suggest to get coffee in a couple weeks to hear how things are going, you are making massive deposits into the Goodwill Karma Bank. Simple as that. Leaving is the ultimate litmus test for an employee. This is the moment when they're going to disappoint you and you have no clear incentive to be nice anymore. This is when management and company culture's true colors appear bright as day. They expect you to give them shock. The, candidate, the employees expect you to be pissed. Instead, if you give them excitement on their new journey and a little regret that you wish you could keep them a little longer, <laughs> the, re, the, re, the repayment is insane. First, when you should be asking for a positive, you know, first, that's when you were asked for a positive review on the review sites, right? If they expected anger and you gave them cheer, that's going to turn a two and three star review into a four and five star review every single time. Your ability to eliminate negative reviews before they happen is the difference between a 3-4 in the mediocre land and a stellar 4-2-4-4 over on the old Glassdoor sites. And the positive sentiment doesn't end at the re review. Your reaction is going to positively color their entire experience. There's a whole lot of data and research that says in a long experience, the thing people remember is the last experience. The four-star meal that ends with ice cream with a fly at the top, that's what they remember. They don't remember the foie gras. They don't remember the succulent blah, 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 blah. They don't remember the amazing olive oil that's really whatever. They remember the fly. But you can flip it around. You can have a mediocre meal that ends with an amazing dessert, and that's what they remember. It's a positive experience. If you end on the right note, you're going to build an army of ex-employees who remember their time with you as positive, as a means to their growth, as a step in their career, a positive one. And they become your ambassadors, spreading your message to people that you never, ever, ever get a chance to reach. Think of it this way. Your recruiter has found an amazing candidate for your role. That shiny candidate is connecting to someone who just left. You have to know that the next thing the candidate does after the recruiter outreach is ping the colleague who just left who is either has two choices, sing your praise or pour poison in their ear. What do you want? Better yet, knowing that you left things on a positive note allows the recruiter to send a different kind of outreach message. Instead of a, hey, uh, generic, I have an opening you'd be amazing at, which, <sighs> whatever. Uh, they could instead say, hey, I see you know, blah, 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 the ex-employee. Ask them what working here is like. And if you like what you hear, I'd love to have a conversation about how you could make a deeper impact here. If you don't think that changes the tenor of the conversation, if you don't think that changes your open or your, your, your response rate, you're nuts, right? Aside from having a far higher response rate, you're setting the entire recruiting process up for success by treating them as a peer instead of begging them to engage. 
The final positive impact is that supporting alumni positively is that you are creating the opportunity for boomerangs. Now, boomerang is a relatively new thing. People who left and then came back sometimes years later. They are the ultimate testament to what your, that your company is a good place to work because these are people who have no illusions about you. They know exactly what you write on good days and bad days. They know the secrets. <laughs> and at some point, they made a choice to leave, to grow their career someplace else. But now they want seconds from you. <laughs> Boomerangs are worth their weight in gold. No question. They know your company. They know how things work. Their onboarding goes like that. They will be in a position to drive value in a fraction of the time of your standard employee. They already know your processes. They know your people. They know how to get things done. In fact, they might even know the hire manager, lowering uncertainty on both sides of the hire, right? The hire manager knows what this person is going to get. The person knows what they're going to get in their manager. That's a, that's a much faster yes. Second, you don't bring boomerangs back at the same or lower level. They come back at a higher level. And recruiters know that higher up the totem pole, the longer the candidate search. So anything that shortens the time to fill on senior roles means lowering the time to fill across the board and means more time to do the work they really want to do. And finally, boomerangs are great because they bring back so much experience back to you and expand your company's perspective. Imagine an entry-level salesperson who you trained, you developed, and they leave after two years for some other sales role. When they come back a year or two later, they are bringing back the experience they got seen through the lens that you built. They don't just bring back random experience. They're all pre-filtered through your way of doing things. Because a boomerang already knows you and learned things through you, what they're bringing back is going to align and elevate, not make things messy. But if you don't invest positive feelings in your alumni, most importantly at the moment of leaving, you can't make boomerangs. And with so much choice out there, why would anyone come back to a place that treated them so badly at that moment of truth? And if you really need them, you're going to end up paying a steep, steep premium in terms of salary and bonuses just to kind of make them forget. So this is episode seven. I want to wrap this up before we go to the next section. This is this. That was a lot of like, look at how everything you thought you knew about recruiting is wrong. I got, you're right. That is, there was a lot of kind of like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. And it's true. We got to regroup. It's true that modern hiring has tried very hard to not change in any meaningful way since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Why would it want to? I mean, why? That's when the companies exerted the maximum power and the most control over the process and the outcome of the talent process. Obviously, it wants to kind of pretend it's still 1987, uh, hopefully before October. Anyway, that is a joke for people who buy stock. Um, companies are finally waking up, though. Thank goodness. They're building relationships with talent before they need to hire people. They ask more of the company to be the, an active part of the attraction and the hiring process. They are actively building advocacy for outreach rather than for compliance. And they reward people who build their own followings on behalf of the company. So here we are at the crossroads. On one side of the road, you've already been following. It's a well-worn path, I promise you. There's a lot of recruiters using it. There's a lot of employer branders using it. There's a lot of hire managers using it but it leads to diminished returns and unsatisfied leadership. It leads to the commoditizing of talent 
and the talent process and the people who oversee it. It's a race to the bottom. It leads to complete and utter obsolescence. You don't believe me? Come on, give me a break. But on the other path, the one that requires a little more work, that leads someplace else. And I can't even be sure that I can say where your version of that path leads because you're going to end up blazing a trail. You're going to end up, you know, at least some of it on your own. But I can tell you that it's going to allow you to engage talent that you can change your company for the better. Talent that has no interest, no incentive whatsoever to engage with you using the old process. So if you're willing to trust that I and others before me have found success on this new trail, come on in. Let's walk it together. Next week, we're going to talk about employer brand thinking, definitions, justifications. We're going to get hot and heavy and employer brand stuff. And I'm going to stop complaining so much, sort of. Hope to see you then. Thanks again to recruitmentmarketing.com for bringing this to you. I'll see you next week. Bye. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.